volunteers. And yet today the fact remains we'll still held captive here. We came in chains. Now we say cut us loose. Though that may go against your brain, still there's no excuse. We came in chains. Now who will bear the cost? Muhammad Ali, the Broadway star. It sounds unbelievable, but it's true. Unable to compete in the ring, the former heavyweight champ played the lead role of big-time Buck White. He'd been banned from boxing three years earlier and stripped of his title for refusing to draft. The show barely lasted a week. What you've just heard is Ali performing the plays we came in chains on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1970. On opening night in 1969, Ali said, I wasn't really acting. Those are my true feelings of freedom, justice, and equality. Off the stage, the struggle for these civil rights and liberties had led Ali to lead Christianity for the Nation of Islam at least 10 years earlier. And the words he mentioned had a special meaning. And that's what you would see on the flag that we had in the Nation of Islam. F was freedom, J justice, E was equality, and then I would be there, which means that you will only get freedom, justice, and equality in the religion of Islam. Muhammad Ali began his spiritual journey as a Muslim with the Nation of Islam, a conversion that scandalized the American public. Everything changes, and the next morning, after he wins the title, he says, I don't have to be who you want me to be. I'm free to be what I want to be and think what I want to think. My father believed you're not Muslim in private. Embracing Islam was an act of resistance. From PRX, AAM, and the Muhammad Ali Center. I'm Preacher Moss, and this is the Universal Title. A podcast on Muhammad Ali and his spiritual journey. From his Baptist roots in Louisville to becoming the best-known Muslim on the world stage, this is the story of how Muhammad Ali won the Universal Title. He wanted to go to heaven, so I took him in seven. I shook up the world! I shook up the world! In the late 1960s, Muhammad Ali and his second wife, Galila, were writing letters to each other. In one of them, Galila asked Ali what first attracted him to Islam. Ali wrote that one day in Louisville, he encountered a black brother dressed in a black mohair suit. The brother was selling some newspapers he had never seen before called Muhammad Speaks. And Ali wrote to his wife, the thing that attracted him to the nation of Islam was a cartoon. The cartoon was called How We Lost Our Language, and it was no laughing matter. So you have a young enslaved person who snuck off the plantation to pray. Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim Whack, the slave master catches him. Look, Shah, I don't allow no infidel language around my plantation. What were you saying? Uh, uh, I was just, uh, 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 Jesus is the light of the world. That's better, says the slave owner. 
Just say what I teach you. Yes, Lord. Oh, thank you, Jesus. In the next three panels, a white slave master punishes the slave for speaking in Arabic and the slave repents. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, master. I will pray to Jesus, sir. Jesus. The idea of reclaiming a lost history from slavery was extremely compelling for young black Americans and Islam became a popular vehicle for doing so. The Nation of Islam was good as an introduction to people who were searching for their identity, searching for some kind of purpose. That's Ilyasa Shabazz, daughter of Malcolm X, the legendary human rights activist and ex-Nation of Islam minister. You know, because if you're just existing and you're existing as a Negro with no um, foundation to your identity, to your heritage, and all you know of is slavery, to understand that life began in Africa, that thriving civilizations began there, that, that they weren't slaves, they weren't savages, they were refined and industrious scholars, priests, farmers. The nation argued that the original religion of enslaved Africans was Islam. Historian Sylvian Juf has studied the early American Muslim population. Islam and the Muslims um, were not recent arrivals, but had been part of the American fabric from the beginning. According to Juf, at least 7 to 10% of the enslaved West Africans brought to the Americas arrived as Muslims. That's over a million who survived the Middle Passage and arrived in the Americas enslaved. What we see is that Islam did not survive in the United States or in the other countries. I think there were several reasons for that. Uh, one was that uh, there were few Muslim women and um, so when Muslim men were able, you know, to have uh, families, in many cases, the, you know, the men and women and children were separated, were sold away. So while enslaved Muslims and their descendants eventually lost their connection to the religion, in the 20th century, many groups arose in America that were influenced by mainstream Islam but differed significantly in articles of faith and daily practice. Zahir Ali is an oral historian and educator. I see in these movements that would be regarded as quote unquote proto-Islamic as movements of Black people in the United States to recover and revive their Muslim heritage that was cut off as a result of slavery. And like many revivalist movements, they reflect and speak to the specific political and cultural and social needs of their people. There was a need for some clarification. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I to do for myself? How do I discover myself? This is Amina Aldine, Professor Emeritus of Islamic Studies at DePaul University. When I come from slavery and it are even deemed by the, the federal government as three-fifths human, how do I overcome all of those things? So you have a message, and in that message, you are taught to do for self, to know yourself, to seek knowledge. 
In Chicago, the finals of the Golden Gloves Western Division. Winners will go on to... In 1958, at only 16 years old, Ali was delivered a rare knockout loss by his opponent, Kent Green, in the second round of the Golden Gloves Tournament. Still the winner, Kent Green. But he didn't return to Louisville from Chicago empty-handed. His Aunt Mary Turner claimed Ali came back home with a black Muslim phonograph record and used to play it over and over and over and over and over again. So my friend, it's not hard to tell a white man's heaven is a black man's hell. The Nation of Islam phonograph record addressed the devastation faced by black people at the hands of white settlers and argued Christianity was misused as a tool to control and oppress. Along with the cartoon, the song may have been Ali's earliest exposure to the Nation of Islam and he would quote it for years to come. Why are we called Negroes? Why are we deaf, dumb, and blind? Why is everybody making progress? And yet we lag so far behind. Why are we mistreated? Why are we in this condition, stripped of our names, our language, our culture, our God, and our religion? The nation was many things, but perhaps most notable was its effect on black communities. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad was, was a social reformer. This is Imam Mansour Sabri. A lot of urban communities were troubled with the same things we're troubled with today. Violence, drug abuse, prostitution, a demoralizing a workforce, unemployment. And so the, the, hence the nation of Islam. That is a nation of people that has land, that has community, that has family life. So a lot of the principles that he taught was about restoring the dignity of the human family, the dignity of the human being, Imam Sabri's father joined the Nation of Islam in 1961. Taking uh, my father, for example, who was an orphan, who didn't have much, uh, didn't have the family support, saw that this community could really anchor and support him in being the type of human being that he wanted to be. So it created an opportunity for him to change the entire trajectory of his life. The nation owned thousands of acres of land, ran major businesses from grocery stores to a national bank and published an internationally distributed newspaper. And at its peak, the nation had hundreds of thousands of members. In addition to its social mission, the nation offered a theology that proved very attractive to many Black Christians like Ali. Here's historian Zahir Ali again. The idea of original sin, of someone else dying for your sins, Elijah Muhammad and, and Malcolm X call that a, a welfare theology. It was not a theology that encouraged self-determination. It was not an, a theology that placed responsibility for your life on you. That no, no one else died for your sins. You were responsible for yourself. That was a big departure from Christian theology, and many Black Americans found the emphasis on self-determination empowering. Elijah Muhammad, who framed Christianity, 
as a religion that had been packaged and prepared by white people for the making of better slaves, which is not entirely untrue. When you know white slave owners decided it was okay to teach religion to those that they had enslaved, the form of religion that they taught was a form of religion that focused on being a better servant to your master. How could anyone find freedom in the slave master's religion? This was the main critique the nation leveraged against Christianity. And while many Black Americans will remain Christian, this criticism influenced the way Black Christian theology developed in the years afterwards. But at that historical moment, Muhammad Ali was a lightning rod for conversion. At first, Ali's boxing career and conversion journey was separate. Cassius Clay has presented the coveted gold medal for his tremendous victory in the light heavyweight division of the Olympic Boxing Championships. A magnificent conclusion to the 1960 Rome Olympics. When Ali defeated Polish boxer Zbigniew Peter Zakowski, he was not a publicly practicing Muslim. But he did wear his Olympic medal everywhere upon his return home. He even slept with it. Then came the day he was denied service at a restaurant in Louisville. He thought he'd be the first to integrate it because of his win. He was wrong. It was the Blue Boar and Kunz's downtown were two restaurants that blacks could not eat at in those years. That's Dr. Cobbs, Ali's childhood friend who we heard in the first episode. He was with them when they were refused service at the Louisville Diner. And I remember his comment. He says, Bobo, I've been all over, all over Europe, all over the world, Rome, people hugging me and grabbing me. And I come home the country that I'm supposed to be representing and I can't eat. He says, I don't want anything to do with the medal. That's what he said. Legend has it, the young Olympian was so disheartened, he threw his medal in the Ohio River. And in a 1971 interview, Ali said that was the moment he became a Muslim. Ali had already begun practicing Islam in private, but he kept a different face for the public like on this 1962 radio interview. Yeah, I attend church a lot. Whatever part of the country I go to, I attend church. But uh, yeah, I do pray before every fight. Uh, I pray awful hard before every fight. So uh, I always say prayers, and I believe that's one reason that I'm so successful, because when you hear 10 or 15,000 people are booing against you, and you end up just on pure faith. Ali never ran from issues of faith but he was hiding the truth about his belief in Islam during this period. And for good reason. Bacchus had almost pulled out of the Miami listening fight, fearing he'd publicly come out as a Muslim. And that's what he's doing. He's making the champion look like a sparring partner. For three years leading up to his fight with Sonny Liston, Ali was sneaking to the Nation of Islam meetings through the back door. He told one of his biographers, Thomas Hauser, that he was afraid if they knew he wouldn't be allowed to fight for the title. Clay has won! Clay has won! Something has happened in Liston's corner. Not going and while the Miami Liston fight was a massive moment in his boxing career, Miami was also the site of some of Ali's most important lifelong connections to Muslim communities. Here's Zahir Ali again. Because before 
Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay met Malcolm X, he met other Muslims. Moving here in 1960, Ali began his professional career training with Angelo Dundee at the Fifth Street Gym. It was in Miami where Ali met Captain Sam, the minister of the Nation of Islam's Mosque Number 29. <laughs> yeah, Captain Sam was affectionately known as Big Red, a very tall, light-skinned brother. He traveled extensively with Muhammad Ali. The mosque is now known as Masjid al-Ansar, and Imam Nasir is the leader of that community today. He was in the camp of Muhammad Ali, his troop that would go around the country and maybe some parts of the world as moral support for Muhammad Ali. Cassius has been following the religion of Islam, the Muslim religion, for the past four or five years. It was Captain Sam who aided Ali in becoming a registered Muslim in the Nation of Islam and introduced Ali to Malcolm X. And I think you'll find that all Muslims uh, who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad have the ability to make friends with everyone. Right before he entered the ring to fight Sonny Liston, Ali prayed with his brother Rudy, also a convert, and the young minister Malcolm X. Malcolm and young Cassius Clay had become fast friends and even vacationed together. Malcolm's daughter, Ilyasa. Muhammad Ali invited my father to bring his wife and family to his camp while he was training. For several years, Malcolm had an immense influence on Ali's growth in the nation of Islam. Even though their friendship was cut short by Malcolm's separation from the nation and eventual assassination, Ali would later say that turning his back on Malcolm X was one of his greatest regrets. So when I was maybe about maybe 30 years old, I was at an event for Muhammad Ali. And so I looked up at him and I said, did you really love my father? And so he said, had I not met your father, my epitaph would have read, here lies the greatest of all time. But because I met your father, my epitaph and life is so much bigger. And that my father had given him a sense of purpose, you know, that he opened his heart, his mind up, you know, to the issues that surround us. Long after Malcolm was gone, his children continued to pray fervently for Ali during his fights. Good punching by both fighters. You know, we would have a house full of women watching a championship fight with Muhammad Ali. And, you know, we were screaming, we were crying, you know, and we had this library at the other end of the house. We would run into the library where the Quran was and we'd pray on the Quran to please keep him safe, to please keep him protected. And then we'd go back, you know, half eyes open watching his fights. Cassius Clay won the fight against Sonny Liston and became the heavyweight champion of the world. It was then he also became Muhammad Ali. He could not continue. Winner by a TKO in the seventh round, Cassius Clay. He came on the scene as a sacrificial lamb. Robert Lipsight is a sports journalist who covered Ali for the New York Times. Cassius Clay had a certain amount of fame but um, nobody really expected him to put up much of a fight. That's why I was sent down. I was a feature writer at the Times, 
and the uh, you know the regular boxing writer didn't think it was worth his time for a one round knockout. So here was Cassius Clay. Uh, he was uh, he was young. He was bizarre. He was youth, kind of full of a kind of energy that sports writers had not really seen before. The nation had previously disapproved of Cassius Clay's boxing career as it shunned participation in sports. But they capitalized on the moment by offering Clay a new name. How long have you had the name? Well, it's about um, two weeks now. Was anybody special gave you the name? Yes, sir. My leading teacher, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. Is this part of the religious beliefs and yes, concepts? Sir. Yes, sir. I'm going to soon take a world tour and I'll be going in Orthodox Islam, it's commonly considered a moral imperative for Muslims to change their names if there's some kind of derogatory meaning attached to it. So these are names that cause you to be conscious and reflective of the Creator uh, because they're giving you something uh, in the meaning. Almighty God put in the nature of every human being uh, this excellence. This is Talib Sharif, Imam of the historic Masjid Muhammad in Washington, D.C and a retired Chief Master Sergeant of the United States Air Force. So names have meanings. They bring out the excellence that's in your own nature and cause you to be reflective and conscious of what's in your own nature, uh, something that you want to strive for, or something that you've been wanting to. There's no obligation for a Muslim to change their name upon embracing Islam. However, the nation's practice was a little different. The surname, like Clay, will be replaced by X until a dignified name of meaning was chosen. And so for a short time, Ali was Cassius X before he was Muhammad Ali. Even before he converted, Ali had traveled the world and marveled at the way others took pride in their culture. See, we don't have our names. See, Chinese have names like Chang Chong, Lu Qian, this is Islamic teachings. Russians have names like Kosygin or Khrushchev. Here he is in a 1972 interview with Irish journalist Cahol O'Shannon. You have names like O'Connor or Grady or Kennedy. Africans have names like Lumumba, Nkrumah. But we have names like Grady and Clay and Hawkins and Smith and Jones and Johnson. But we are black. These so, are the slave names. Yes. And these dignified names were part of what attracted him to Islam. So Muhammad Ali is a beautiful black name. Name of our ancestors. So when I heard this, I just had to walk out of the church and Christianity because they never taught us our true knowledge. Muhammad Ali was and still is an incredibly popular name for Muslims. Elijah Muhammad, Ali's religious leader, personally selected the name for him. Cassius Clay is a name no more, is that right? Yes, sir. It's Muhammad Ali. Muhammad means worthy of all praises and Ali means most high in the Asian African language. Clay had won the championship and announced he was a Muslim. Days later, the Nation of Islam broke news, too. So um, the change of his name was shocking. Robert Lipsight continued covering Ali after the victory against Liston and struggled with his editors on the subject of Ali's name. I, I certainly remember what a terrible time I had trying to get his name into the paper. Uh, when I asked the editor of the Times at that time, uh, why I couldn't just call him Muhammad Ali as he wants to be called. He said, well, when he changes his name in an American court of law, then we'll call him. But of course, 
Actors who changed their names had no issues getting their new names in the papers. Roy Harold Shera Jr. could be Rock Hudson. Robert Zimmerman could be Bob Dylan. Marion Mitchell Morrison could be John Wayne. It just kind of made sense. Man wants to be called Muhammad Ali. Man wants to be called John Wayne. Why not? I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face. And I upset son and listen. And I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. After that fight against Listen in Miami, 1964, Muhammad Ali was on top of the world. He just skyrocketed from underdog to heavyweight champion of the world in seven rounds flat. You would think he'd only want to talk about that. Cassius, Cassius, wait a minute, Cassius. The journalists were nose to nose with him, but they couldn't get a word in edgewise. He would drown out the journalist's questions with the truth he was now ready to tell. I told the world I talk to God every day. If God's with me, can't nobody be against me, Sonny. I shook up the world. I know God. I know the real God. He was just 22 years old. Less than 24 hours after becoming heavyweight champ, Ali was roaring that he was a Muslim and that he would change the world. The Universal Title is a production of America Abroad Media in partnership with PRX and the Muhammad Ali Center. The series was written by Precious Rashida Muhammad, along with Ahmed Ali Akbar, Maggie Van Dorn, and Aaron Lobel. Our editor is Ahmed Ali Akbar, Maggie Van Dorn is the producer, and Rosalind Tordesillas is the associate producer. Engineering from Douglas Robertson, post-production sound and mix by PRX Productions, and Sandra Lopez Monsave. Cover art by Felicia Ann. The executive producers are Aaron Lobel, Farah Pandit, and Precious Rashida Muhammad. Support for this program has been provided by the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, the Henry Luce Foundation, the El Hibri Foundation, and the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates. For more information about the podcast, visit theuniversaltitle.com. I'm your host, Preacher Moss, thank you for listening. On the next episode of the Universal Title. We needed to understand being Black was from God and being Black was how we were created and it was okay and it wasn't inferior to any other race or, or other human. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.